great charge, really a great privilege, a great privilege that we have as children of God, if we are children of God this morning, to ring out the message. In Jesus' words to the disciples as recorded in Mark's account of the gospel, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Ring out the message to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. That's the Great Commission as Mark records it. And there's something that follows that admonition that is sadly still being perverted in the religious world today. And that's what I want us to look at today, not only in this lesson, but in some future lessons, not necessarily in sequence, but from time to time. I want to look at passages people pervert, passages people pervert. Second Peter 3.16 is a key text that ties in with this theme that I'd like to follow in some future lessons. To get the context fully, verse 15, we add to it, where Peter writes, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. He didn't say they were impossible to understand, but hard to understand. And then he added, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There's an incidental point that's quite significant there that Peter by inspiration makes. Notice what he says. As he speaks of Paul's writings, he says, untaught and unstable people twist them, pervert them to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the what? Scriptures. So what does he say Paul's writings are? Scripture. Scripture. The Word of God. Not just the words of, of a man uninspired by the Holy Spirit, but the words of God himself. Verbally inspired Word of God given to Paul in the wisdom given to him as it was given to Peter and given to all the inspired writers of the New Testament. But in that great text, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Then there are verses that follow that tragically have been greatly perverted. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The tragic perversion of of this passage in Mark has just recently, just recently led to 
the death of an individual in Middlesboro, Kentucky, who was the key figure, Jamie Coots, I believe was the name, in the reality program on National Geographic television entitled Snake Salvation. He had already been bitten at least once, maybe more, had lost a part of a finger that had basically rotted off until it broke off. And when he was bitten this last time, just a few weeks ago, he refused treatment. The emergency crews came. They were eager to treat him. They were eager to help him. And yet he refused treatment. They finally left his home, came back about an hour later, and retrieved his body. All because of the perversion of this passage. Because this passage does not teach that we are to take up serpents in order to demonstrate our faith in God and Christ today. Nor did it mean that even when these signs were available, that every believer was to possess these signs or take up uh, serpents deliberately. It didn't mean that then, and we'll see that in just a few moments. How many tragic deaths have occurred with all sincerity of heart among those who have lost their lives, believing with all of their hearts that they were simply being obedient to this text through the years that has occurred. So rather than dwell further on the perversion of the passage, let's simply look at some pertinent points that will keep us from perverting this passage. First of all, the possession of signs was to certain Christians. It was never promised to all believers. Never do we find in Scripture that miraculous signs were promised to all believers. If you go to the text that we are examining in Mark 16, and look, first of all, at what Jesus says here about that, you can understand and appreciate that not every believer was to possess these signs. Verse 17, again. And these signs will follow those who believe. These signs will follow those who believe. That's not a statement that says... When every believer becomes a believer, he will automatically be given the ability to perform these signs. But they will follow, or as the King James says, I believe, accompany those who believe. In other words, they will be available to those who believe. And we see the demonstration of that with the miraculous signs as they were exercised in the early church. In Acts chapter 2... And verse 38, those who first obeyed the gospel were promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is my firm conviction that that promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit involved the miraculous. 
that it was the miraculous gift of the Spirit, but that it did not involve a promise to every baptized believer that upon his arising from the watery grave of baptism, he would automatically possess miraculous signs. But that basically is the interpretation that Jamie Coots and those of that persuasion were laboring under, and many continue to labor under. Any believer should be able to take up that serpent. Any believer should be able to do that. No, that was never the case. That was never the case even when the miraculous signs were given. They were to certain Christians to help the early church, the infant church, reach its maturity until all was confirmed. We'll talk about that as another one of our pertinent points in just a few moments. But in Acts 2.38, Peter said to those who cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, what shall we do to be saved? Verse 37, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They already believed, so he didn't obviously tell them to believe. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. In other words, this promise is to not only the Jews initially to whom the gospel was preached, but ultimately to those who are far off, an obvious reference to the Gentiles, to as many as the Lord our God shall call, not every individual, but all people, whether Jew or Gentile, will benefit from this gift. Now, I recognize there are those who don't believe the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 was miraculous. I believe it can be clearly demonstrated that it was miraculous, but that it was for a limited time, as we'll talk about in a few moments, but that it was also limited to certain Christians. The apostles obviously had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 records that overwhelming baptismal measure of the Spirit which enabled the apostles to speak in languages they had never learned, to preach for the first time the gospel of Christ. They also had, as a result of that baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power to lay hands on certain individuals who had become Christians in order to impart to them miraculous gifts that were to serve the infant church until such time as it reached a certain point, a point about which we'll speak in just a few moments. But not to every individual Christian. And it can be clearly shown that upon their baptism in Acts 2, those who were baptized did not all have the gift of the Spirit as a result of their baptism, miraculous gift of the Spirit. If you go to Acts chapter 8, and we've looked at these passages in times past, but we need to look at them again in reference to, indeed, the passage that we're uh, studying today that has been perverted as a result of failing to understand these principles, these pertinent points. If you go to Acts uh, chapter 8, you see that after there were those who were converted down in Samaria, based upon the preaching of the word, verse 4, that those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Stop right there. Why was Philip able to do the miracles that he did? 
He was able to do them because obviously an apostle, some apostle had laid upon him hands that imparted that power because only the apostles could do that. Philip did not have that power to impart miraculous gifts to others because he was not an apostle. Only the apostles had that power. But Philip had the, had the miraculous gifts because an apostle had laid hands on him. So he was able to do these things when he came to Samaria. Why did he do them? We'll talk about that in a few moments, but I'll give you a preview. It was to confirm that what he was preaching was true. He needed to be able to confirm that what he was preaching to these Samaritans was indeed from God. And as we've asked before, there might have been some who would have said, you tell me I need to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized? How do I know that? Philip could confirm that message with miracles. And that was his purpose, as we'll talk further about in just a few moments. But notice, unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Then we read about Simon. We see that Simon, uh, who had practiced sorcery, got into some difficulty spiritually because he sought to buy this gift with money, the gift to impart miraculous gifts. He had to be rebuked by Peter, and he was uh, uh, rebuked. Uh, he was rebuked by Peter, and uh, uh, he, uh, he repented as a result of, uh, of that. And uh, that was after uh, Peter came down to uh, Samaria, the latter part of the chapter. But let's go to that part, verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, Listen to this. They sent Peter and John. Who do we have here? Peter and John. Two what? Two apostles. Peter and John were sent down to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might what? Receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All of them? No. No indication that all of them had the apostles' hands laid on them. But what is clear here is that whatever took place at the baptism, whatever took place at the baptism was not the miraculous gift of the Spirit being given to them. Therefore, Acts 2.38, when it says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, I believe clearly demonstrates when you put it together with this passage and Acts 19 for that matter that we could look at as well, clearly shows that that power was imparted by the laying on of apostles' hands that it did not come automatically to believers at their baptism. Yes, it was miraculous, Acts 2.38, the gift of the Holy Spirit, but not in conjunction with their baptism immediately. But it came only after the apostles had laid hands on certain of these Christians in order to allow the infant church to function as God would have it function. How did they function? They didn't have this book. They had to have miraculous gifts in order to function. And so the possession of signs was not to all believers. Acts 2.38 does not teach that when you are baptized into Christ, you rise to receive the gift of the Spirit, meaning the miraculous gift at that point. I believe it's the miraculous gift, but it was only imparted as we see it demonstrated in the passage we've just read in Acts 8 by the laying on of the apostles' hands. And so, 
it was laid on, or it was through the laying on of the apostles' hands that it took place, and as we've already alluded to, and now we look at it in more detail, it had a specific purpose. Possession of signs to certain Christians, never an indication that all believers possessed these miracles, and the purpose of the signs to confirm the word. Go back to our text in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, what does verse 20, which we read earlier, tell us? It clearly says that the purpose of this was what? The purpose of it was for the confirming of the word of God. The Lord working with them and what? Confirming the word by what? By the signs that followed. When you go back, I think I may have said Matthew, back to Mark 16, verse 17 through 20. What does verse 20 tell us? Verse 20 says, The Lord worked with them. Working with them how? Working with them through the signs, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Could it be any clearer? Could it be any clearer that the purpose of signs was to confirm the word? And what do you read about time and time again in the New Testament? When a miracle is performed, what is the result of that miracle? Time and again, whether it was the miracles of Christ, whether it was the miracles of the apostles, what do you read that followed closely on the heels of those miracles? Some what? Seeing those miracles believed. Others did not. Others, others uh, simply tried to rationalize or deny them or simply ignore the import of them. But those of right hearts, those of contrite spirits, understood the purpose of signs, that it was to confirm the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now keep that in mind as we come back to the point of taking up serpents in just a moment. But before we do, one other pertinent point, very, very crucial, the practice of signs. That practice was to conclude with the completion of written revelation. And that is made abundantly clear. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 and following, the Apostle Paul, in the midst of a three-chapter discussion of miraculous gifts, in the midst of that discussion, near the conclusion of that discussion, which has taken place in 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, in 12 and then, or in 12 rather, 13 and 14, right in the midst of this discussion, if you will, what does he write in verse 8 beginning? Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. What does that have to do with? Miraculous. You don't prophesy unless you're miraculously endowed to prophesy. Love never fails, but whether they be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. What are the tongues? 
languages. Languages that people were able to speak that had never learned those languages. Not some incomprehensible gibberish that is purported today among some to be speaking in tongues, which is not even a close cousin to what was truly speaking in, in uh, tongues in the New Testament. They will cease, he says. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. All knowledge? No. Miraculous knowledge. The kind of knowledge that was necessary before we had this book in its completed form so that men could teach, so that men could know whether what one was teaching was from God or not. There was even that gift to be able to discern whether or not someone was teaching truth. That was one of the miraculous gifts. But that kind of knowledge, Paul says, will cease. It will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, complete is the idea of the word, when that which is complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now there's no question, and could not be a question in anybody's mind, that these miraculous gifts about which Paul writes here were going to cease. He says they're going to cease. The disagreement arises over when. And those who take up serpents today, and those who drink poison today, and those who believe they can speak in so-called tongues today, would tell you that these signs will not cease until the Lord comes again, that they are for every believer and that they for, are for all time. But think about that for just a brief moment about our second pertinent point, the purpose of science to confirm the word. You see, you have a problem with that position right there because I hold in my hand the confirmed word. If the purpose of science was to confirm the word, to confirm the deity of Christ, that he was the Christ, to confirm that the word that he gave was from God, to confirm that the word of the apostles, the other inspired writers, and the inspired teachers of that New Testament period were truly teachers from God. If that was the purpose of those signs, then what about this book? Does it still need continual confirmation, or has it been confirmed? Have we reached that which is complete about which Paul has written and about which we just read? Well, what is that which is complete? It's not a he. It's not Christ, as some would contend, because it's an it. It's in the neuter gender, not the masculine gender. Therefore, it cannot refer to Christ, as some contend. Some contend... That which is perfect is Christ. Therefore, the miracles will continue until Christ comes. No, that which is perfect. Not he who is perfect, but that which is perfect. He, to say he who is perfect is to pervert this passage. Therefore, it's that which is perfect. Whatever it is, what is it? Well, it's when I'll be able to see face to face, when I'll know as I am also known, rather than seeing in a mirror dimly. 
as revelation was being given, piece by piece, part by part, that was that period of time before we came face to face with the full, complete knowledge of God in Christ that we have through His all-sufficient Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, same word as in 1 Corinthians 13. Thoroughly furnished unto every good work. There it is. There it is. Therefore, that which is perfect is not Christ, but that which is perfect by the pen of the same writer in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is the word of God which I hold in my hand. And we have it in its complete form. One other point along these lines. Paul writes, and now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. After that which is perfect has come, Paul affirms something else is going to continue even after that which is complete has come. What will it be? Faith, hope, and love. Does faith continue today even though I have this book? Of course it does. In fact, my faith is based upon this book. Does love continue today even though I have this book? Well, of course it does. What about hope? Of course hope continues. Hope is desire coupled with expectation. Hope is desire coupled with expectation. But let's concentrate on that word hope for a moment and ask this question. If that which is perfect refers to Christ, will hope continue after Christ comes? You see, Paul says, whatever that which is perfect is, whenever that which is perfect comes, after it comes, hope will still be here. Will hope still be here after Christ comes again? Are you going to hope to see Christ after you've seen Him? Why, of course not. And the thing is, that's not my argument. That's Paul, an inspired writer's argument. Listen to Romans 8, 24. In Romans 8, verse 24, Paul writes, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is, that is seen is not hope. Listen to that again. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Are we eagerly waiting for the Lord? I hope so. Are we hoping to see Him? Yes. Will we hope to see Him after we've seen Him? No. But Paul said, after that which is perfect has come, hope will continue. Therefore, that which is perfect cannot refer to Christ. It's an it, and hope will continue after it has come. I hold the it in my hand, and I still have hope. Therefore, the practice of signs was to conclude with the completion of Revelation. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, for further reinforcement of this same truth. In Ephesians 4, again, the Apostle Paul is the writer, and he's speaking of inspired offices and inspired gifts again, and he writes, 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, listen to verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He goes on that we should no longer be children, etc., tossed to and fro. What is it that is going to keep me from being tossed to and fro? What is it that is going to help me to be mature? I hold it in my hand. Till we all come to what? The unity of faith. In other words, is he saying miraculous gifts would would continue till we all believe alike? No. Not to the unity of faith, but to the unity of what? The faith. What is the faith? Christianity. In its complete and final form, this is the gospel. This is the word of God. This is the New Testament in its completeness, in its fullness, which tells me how to be in the faith and remain in the faith. Jude wrote in Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The practice of signs continued until this was once for all delivered. And now that I have it, I don't need those signs anymore. And John, an inspired writer, drives the point home. Many other signs truly Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. John says, they once were performed before we had this. Now that we have this, they're written And they're written in such a way to the honest student that you cannot deny that what is written truly happened, truly occurred, and therefore they are designed, those miracles that are recorded, to produce faith. Why would I want to hold this in one hand and a serpent in the other. And yet, that's what men have been doing. Believing that the handling of a serpent goes hand in hand with the handling of the Bible. And yet, nothing could be further from the truth. Been going on for a while. This is a picture from Life magazine. Going back to the 1940s, and can you see well enough what appears to me to be a rattlesnake being held in the midst of a Bible? Another lady back here, behind this fella, has a snake of some sort in her hand. The believer does not demonstrate his faith by lifting up a serpent, but by lifting up the Savior through obedience to his word. How sad it is that passages like Mark 16, 17 through 20 have been perverted. Tragic because it has cost men their lives, 
but according to the Word of God, their souls as well. How utterly tragic that is. What about you this morning? Will you believe what this passage, not perverted, but pure in its teaching tells you to do? The commission was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's still as current today as it was when the Lord spoke those words. And when those words had their fulfillment initially on Pentecost Day, when the apostles, in compliance with that command, began to preach the gospel to all the world. But the rest of the passage in Mark 16, verses 17 through 20, needs to be properly understood, just as we've pointed out from the pertinent points about it today, that it no longer has application to us. There are no signs that are needed, as we have demonstrated from Scripture. What is needed is for you to have enough faith in this obviously God-breathed book to obey what it teaches you to obey. And in the New Testament, the last will and testament of Christ, that teaching is believe with all of your heart or die in your sins, Jesus said, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you, Matthew 10, 32. And yes, Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Believe the signs you can read about. Let them produce the kind of faith that will lead you to do the things we've just outlined from Scripture. And believe also what this book teaches about the wayward child of God. And that it would have been better, Second Peter 2, 20 and following, never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn your back upon the holy commandment once delivered. If you've done that, Please don't remain in that condition. Please come home so that you can go home one day in accordance with your obedience to the all-sufficient, verbally inspired Word of Almighty God. Will you come as we stand to sing?